feels like the autumn season showed up today with the change in the feel of the air, this coolness, more crisp, dry air. I guess it's, I guess in the next day or two, it's the equinox. So it's timely arrival. There's something about the the air this time of day walking over just in this twilight and the clarity of the sky this time of day. It's very cool, very beautiful. A thing to notice, perhaps delight in. I was looking over my notes and uh, I was kind of thinking just on my way over that it's kind of only really one talk and variations on a theme of don't cling to anything, some version of that. Everything we say is in service of that. So I've already told even the talk and you can let the rest of this kind of fill that out a bit, but that's the gist of anything any one of us might say. Don't hold on, let go, let be. All the different ways that we might sort of point to this. It's said that the Buddha surveyed the world after his awakening and and saw beings trying to find happiness or fulfillment or satisfaction and, and doing the very things that caused them to suffer, to not find this. And in, in seeing this, he was describing what we could call the human condition, the rolling on of samsara. Kate spoke to this last night. And in this regard, not much has changed since that time, nearly 2,600 years now. The same scenario really still playing itself out. And all this shenanigans that we get up to as a species are all, it's all this same movement of mind. There is this beautiful wholesome root of this urge, this movement of heart towards finding happiness. It's actually a beautiful uh, wholesome movement of mind of heart without any doubt. And so there is that wholesome root, it's just that there's a lot of confusion about what might lead to that, lead to that real happiness. And when the Buddha described his teaching, he said this this is uh, going against the stream or against the way of the world. He was um, pointing at at the situation and we could use, um, we could think of the stream that that the teaching that his offering goes against or this way of the world is um, as the stream of desire or craving or wanting. And when we follow this way, this stream, then we're, we're following that movement, that energy flowing with that, that current, seeking happiness, which is a good thing to seek, but we're seeking it through pursuing objects or experiences in which we imagine that we'll find some kind of lasting fulfillment. And we get so fixated on the objects of our desires, uh, of our 
this focus of energy and they seem so promising in the moment that we, we lose sight of the fact that this is an endless pursuit because the demands of the wanting mind of desire are, are endless and are never satisfied for very long. And we see this over and over, but we don't give up trying. <laughs> we don't give up very easily. And so we just keep at it until we run out of time and energy. And then we, ta- <coughs> we take birth and we do it again. <laughs> this is the flowing on, the rolling on of samsara, whether we see it in multiple lifetimes or within one lifetime. And, and so then the Buddha did say, well, I have this other way that goes against, goes in the other direction, this other path. It runs counter to that flood And he once described himself as the knower of the path, the seer of the path, and the guide along the path. <laughs> this language is there. And, and it's, it's not the only one. You know, there are many ways that one might arrive at, at what we might call the truth or at liberation of mind or other words we might use to describe this understanding. Many fingers pointing at the moon, you could say, and some are standing over there, and some are standing over there. And so the pointing may look different. And actually the moon's in there. It's not out there. But they, they're all pointing at the same thing. They all want us to see. We have to be careful we're looking where they're pointing and, and not at the finger that's doing the pointing. And it can be confusing. Well, what's a, what's a true path then to happiness? You know, there's a lot of them on offer at times. I'd like to read a short quotation from a book that I read about 45 years ago that was very, um, very uh, powerful, important to me at that time. It was uh, the teachings of Don Juan by Carlos Castaneda. And in that, this is a short quotation that you will have heard, many of you, it's quite famous in a way. So in this book is uh, Don Juan, teacher speaking to Carlos. And he said, before you embark on any path, ask the question, does this path have a heart? If the answer is no, you will know it and then you must choose another path. The trouble is nobody asks the question. And when you finally realize that you have taken a path without a heart, the path is ready to kill you. At that point, very few of us can stop to deliberate and leave the path. For me, there's only the traveling on paths that have a heart, on any path that may have a heart. There I travel, and the only worthwhile challenge for me is to traverse its full length. And there I travel, looking, looking breathlessly. And I remember when I read these words, and I, I, had, I wanted so badly to feel that I was walking on some kind of path that had heart, and, and that I could walk it with this breathlessness, this sense of, of awe or something like that. I had this intuition, this sense that it must be possible. It felt so possible to me. And so right 
to be able to walk a path with heart. And, and none of the paths that I felt were being offered to me at that time felt like they had any real heart. And maybe some of us have come to this retreat or to or this practice in a search for a path with heart. And maybe some of us feel that we have found one here. And that keeps us coming back. And so if we embark on a path, if we find a path that uh, seems like it may have a heart, if we approach that possibility, then um, if we want to reach the destination, what the finger's pointing at, there are two things we have to do. We have to um, actually set out just sitting around and thinking and planning, reading up on it, won't get us there. So we have to set out and we have to set out in the right direction. Because if we don't, we're not gonna reach our destination and we might even encounter some trouble and get lost on the way. So the Buddha gave some clear directions and if we're interested in walking his path, then, then those directions are, on, are offered and they're, they're very clearly, uh, they're very clearly offered, spoken about in a very clear way. And, and with all kinds of different language, I'll speak about one set of directions, which goes to the, the heart of the teachings in what is called the teachings of the Four Noble Truths, which culminates in the fourth of these is, is what's called the Eightfold Noble Path. And this, this teaching of the path, which is basically the way to bring the understandings and the practice of the Four Noble Truths, um, it's, it's the, the way that leads to that unfolding. It gives us a set of practices and guidelines that allow us to see the nature of suffering in our lives, its cause, to a, a way to abandon the cause and through this to realize the possibility of freedom from suffering. Now we could study, you might notice your mind worrying about, oh, I have to try to remember these things and these before this and now there's eight, eight things, oh, oh no. And, um, don't worry, you do not have to remember any of this because it's, it's mostly an organic process and mostly it just takes care of itself. But sometimes having this framework can be useful. And we can think, oh, it's just another list I have to memorize if I'm a good Buddhist or, or something like that. But it's, it's not just a theoretical um, bit of Buddhist philosophy or something. It's actually a practical framework for um, practice that was engaged with very directly in the meditation and, and very broadly in our lives, functions in that way. So tonight I'm gonna to talk a bit about how these things weave together in some way. Um, you could give a, a talk on each aspect of the Eightfold Path and uh, on each of the Four Noble Truths or even series on them. So this is not going into any great depth, but hopefully give kind of an overview. 
And it's important when we approach this subject that we, you know, we can hear the Eightfold Path and the way it lines out and see it as some kind of linear progression, which it is not. It's a more useful way to look at it would be like interwoven strands of a cable that support and inform and strengthen one another. I remember um, practicing with Saida Upandita in uh, more than one occasion. He would say that these factors are, um, that they're they're taken care of if one is practicing uh, mindfulness meditation if one is cultivating continuity of mindfulness and really applying oneself, then, then they're taken care of. And we don't have to work on them outside of that simplicity of applying ourselves to bringing mindfulness to our life. So the path as it's classically laid out is in kind of three groups, three sections you could say. And the first of these is the wisdom group called the wisdom group. It has two, two out of the eight. Uh, In Pali, the first one is samadhiti, which is right view or wise view. And the second, right intention or right thought, sometimes one or the other, samasankappa. The first two, and these factors kind of address a certain sort of orientation of mind. And they can lead to a powerful and, and kind of transforming shift of our perspective. And there's all kinds of ways that we could talk about um, wise or right view. I'll, I'll touch on one possibility of how we might see this and it has, a, has very much to do with the subject of uh, the talk last night and this uh, understanding of uh, the first noble truth or the noble truth of, of Dukkha that Kate spoke about so nicely last night. But I want to touch on a couple of key points. So she translated the word dukkha as unsatisfactoriness. Sometimes I like unreliability also, I think is a useful way of holding this. And, and it's, it's a characteristic of, of existence, manifests in different ways, very obviously in terms of just what it, what it is to take birth and live in one of these bodies that, you know, is heading in a one-way direction towards aging, sickness, and death, if nothing else, not to mention the painful uh, bodily sensations and mental stuff that comes along. That's one aspect, not the whole picture, the flow of joys and sorrows, pleasures and pains that come. And then the more subtle understanding of dukkha as this kind of insecurity this unreliability that is uh, direct re- directly related to the fact that things are constantly changing. And on this level, dukkha um, has to do with what's very pleasant as well. It's not just unpleasant or difficult experiences. Pleasant ones are also characterized by this uh, changing nature. So they're not reliable. No one blissful, pleasant experience is going to do the trick because it won't last. So there's this kind of inner anxiety that's born of the fact that things are changing in a state of flux. And, and so this dukkha in this, in this way, this is just the nature of things. This is life. We get this, the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows, this 
movement between pleasure and pain, all of that. Somehow we're conditioned to feel that we're supposed to be able to to fix this. Someone once des- described samsara as the urge to fix or correct. And maybe Kate spoke about it this way last night, but we have this idea that we're supposed to be able to get it where it's only, it's like the way I spoke about uh, Vedana, we're supposed to get it so it's only pleasant or only the way we like it. You know, like, like a TV commercial where we're supposed to be happy and beautiful all the time, like those people there. And if we're not pulling that off, then it's our fault. You know, it leads us to taking the truth of dukkha personally, as though our inability to get it to look like in those TV commercials or those beautiful magazine ads is, is somehow evidence of personal failure. But, you know, it's just the way it is, right? We get that range and that insecurity, that unreliability born of change is just, just a reflection of the truth of things. It's not because we have blown it or continue to blow it in an ongoing way and have failed to just get our act together properly somehow. And this doesn't mean that we don't have any agency or ability to steer the course of a life. And we doesn't mean that we, we give up. We, tr- we do the best we can. We live as well as we can with as much grace and integrity as we can bring to the situation. But opening to this truth, this unreliability, unsatisfactoriness is the key. That's where the Buddha started. That's where we have to start. Because until we really open to this, we're always going to be looking for a way out. And we'll be turning to that which just by its very nature is, is not capable of bringing us lasting happiness. But we'll be looking for it there. We'll be asking it to do something it can't do. So there's a key understanding that the Buddha came to in his exploration of this this problemo, this dilemma here. <laughs> he found that actually stress, struggle, suffering in relation to the fact that it's unreliable and that sometimes it's unpleasant and painful, he found that that, that there's some renew- room to maneuver in there and that um, that this is in great part a mind-caused phenomenon. It has to do with how we relate to this truth, the truth of this uh, unpredictability, unreliability, unsatisfactory nature of things. It's in that relationship, which is great news, because then we have some possibility to uh, come to an understanding that would shift how we're relating. It's actually really good news, because our ability to control is limited to make it be only one way or another. It's limited at best. So it's born in the mind out of this relationship to what's happening to the truth of of dukkha, wanting things to be other than they are, trying to manipulate and control experience. Now this isn't to deny the very real suffering that exists in the world and for so many and 
it would be a mistake, and I think in an oversimplification, to say that it's all mind-caused. And the truths of injustice and oppression are all too real. I want to be careful that we're not falling into to, uh, oversimplifying and saying it's all mind-caused. But at the same time, so much of what we struggle with in our world, in our life, in the world, so much suffering that, that we do encounter is the result of this lack of understanding and this uh, resistance and denial struggling with the truth of the way things are and futile attempts to control and manipulate it so it's only a certain way. And so if we open to this truth with this understanding that a lot of what we encounter in terms of struggle and stress and suffering has to do with how we're relating, then this can radically transform our orientation and opens up a possibility that we might find, find some uh, way out of the, this dilemma, this ongoing dilemma. If we open to it in a skillful way to the truth of dukkha, then it will lead us to seek a reliable path, something that might actually lead to happiness. So this is uh, an aspect, a key aspect of what we might call a right or wise view. And this brings then the second of the wisdom factors, right thought or right intention, we could see intention as um, an energy that would leak, link or connect an understanding we might have with actually doing something. So it's like we see there's a problem and we uh, look for uh, some way to, some solution to that. And we actually engage with something like this practice that uh, might prove useful in that. So it, it's the setting out on the journey. And so these two of view and right view or wise view and intention then would lead to the next stage, which has three factors. The next group of the Eightfold Path has uh, factors that have to do with our conduct, how we live in the world. And this uh, is called the, um, the sila section, has to do with ethical conduct, our commitment to care in how we're living, attention to how we live. Three aspects, uh, right speech, samavacha, right action, samakamanta, and right livelihood, samajiva. And this whole section basically is oriented around and addresses uh, the sense of uh, creating and living uh, harmoniously, not intentionally, not intentionally adding to the suffering of the world through our actions, through our speech, through what we do to earn a living. And so engaging with, with these uh, path factors and the sila group, then that leads us to um, the third section, which is often called the concentration group. Again, three factors, right effort, samma vayama, right mindfulness, samasati, and right concentration, samasamadhi. In one of the texts, there's an interesting sort of illustration that shows uh, an interdependent relationship with these uh, factors. And the images of children, three children who want to play, who are playing, they go to play in a park and they see some flowering branches in a tree and they want to pick some flowers. 
and they're beyond the reach of even the tallest one. So um, one of the friends, one of the children, uh, bends down and makes kind of a platform, and the other one climbs up on the uh, on the back, but is still afraid of falling. So the other one comes up and lends a shoulder to steady, and then the other one is able to reach up and gather some flowers. And so it's said that in this image, the tall child who who's able to reach and pick the flowers is uh, represents concentration that unifies the mind, is able to gather and collect the mind, but needs the support of um, energy or right effort, which is likened to the child who provides the back to stand and climb up on, and the stabilization or steadiness or balancing of mindfulness in the child that offers her shoulder to uh, stabilize the situation there. So these factors weave and work together, and when they're functioning, um, you know, fairly well, <laughs> there starts to grow, uh, be a growing stability of the mind and, and a quality of non-distraction that actually allows the awareness to rest on the object with some more steadiness, you could say, to actually connect with our life instead of just being pulled all over in all kinds of directions. We can stay present with experience long enough that understanding that insight might have the chance to arise and the possibility to uh, drop, you could say, below the the surface appearances things through this uh, working of these factors. And we, we start through this to see how things work and how stress and struggle and suffering do arise in the mind and heart. We see how habits drive our world how this functions, and and through just this direct seeing of this, not thinking about it, just feeling it, seeing it, there's a natural unbinding that starts to happen, a letting go, a settling, a relaxing, that's not so much a decision we make, but just uh, because we're not stupid. And we start to see, as Kate was saying, we see where the suffering is through this holding on in different ways, and, and because we're not stupid and don't want to suffer, we let go. We start to relax that, release that. It deconditions this grasping, clinging in the mind, this identification. And through this process, we start to find ease and we start to touch the possibility that this path might actually lead to a, a really deep, abiding kind of peace or happiness, a complete freedom from suffering. The peace of uh, Nibbana, the fruit of the Buddha's awakening. Maybe don't use this word Nibbana, Nirvana in Sanskrit. We hear it. It's out in their ads. (laughs) Nirvana, it's usually someone hanging out in a hot tub. Uh, which might be pleasant, and you maybe you're still hoping you're encounter one, and you're wandering around here. <laughs> it's got to be one somewhere. It's over there. It's just down around the corner. I just haven't found it. But there's a simple description of this freedom. It says it's from one of the texts. It says extinction of greed, extinction of hate, extinction of delusion. This is called nibbana. Very simply. 
if these energies no longer hold sway over the heart, they're no longer running the show, then one experiences this deepest peace. Do we even hold this as any kind of a possibility? You know, these energies seem to be there a lot of the time. I have a picture, I have a small uh, sort of shrine or altar that I, I kind of travels with me sometimes. I have it here now, I set it up when I, when I got, came here. And uh, I have a picture there of uh, a very beloved teacher of mine, Sayada Ulakana, who died uh, last year, who I had a long association with for many, many years. And in the picture, he's, he's uh, paying respects to his teacher, one of his teachers. And this picture was taken a number of years ago when Sayada Ulakana was uh, having some trouble with his health and he, he wasn't well. And I used to see him almost every winter when I would help with a retreat that he taught for um, non-Burmese uh, foreign yogis in Upper Burma in the Sagang Hills. And, and this one winter, he was really not well and I was we were all quite concerned. And this this monk came to visit him and there was all this excitement around the monastery because everyone said this is a, he's a fully enlightened being, this, this monk who's coming. And, and they, someone was saying, well, he's just, he's not like a special arahant, he's just kind of an everyday run-of-the-mill arahant. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure <laughs> what's up with that, but... You know, so this, this very small, quiet, old monk shows up and um, he seemed pretty, sh- pretty shanti, pretty peaceful. And I have this picture in this picture, Sayadaw's, he was very sick at this time, but he just was beaming with his hands like this, having just, just about to bow to this, this uh, monk who had been um, an important teacher of his. And, uh, you know, do we even entertain the idea that this might be possible? That these energies might not be arising in the mind, or if they did arise, maybe they wouldn't have any power of any kind. This is a, uh, from a book about a, a Thai nun named Mei Kao, who was uh, widely held to be fully enlightened lived in in uh, the last century she she died i think in the 70s so fairly recent <laughs> this is a quotation from a book about her uh, she said body mind and essence are all distinct and separate realities absolutely everything is known earth water fire and wind body feeling memory thought and consciousness sounds, sights, smells, tastes, touches, and emotions, anger, greed, and illusion, all are known. I know them all as they exist in their own natural states, but no matter how much I am exposed to them, I am unable to detect even an instant when they have any power over my heart. That's a familiar list. It's pretty much what we're seeing all, some, some of those things. It's what we see. 
unable to detect even an instant where they have any power. So two different ways we might look at this possibility, that they aren't arising in the mind stream, or if they do arise, they're powerless. They've been rendered powerless. Either one of those sounds pretty good. This word Nibbana is literally, uh, I've read in one place at least, that it literally means something like to cease blowing or to go out. And uh, sometimes it's likened to a fire that goes out when its fuel is exhausted. It just goes out. It's a good image. If we're not feeding these fires of greed, hatred, and delusion, they just go out like a fire that goes out when its fuel is exhausted. They, if they're not being fed, they fall away. So these um, greed, hatred, delusion, which are can be seen as sort of our unwise engagement with the river of clinging, grasping desire. This is how it, it plays out in terms of these movements of holding on or pushing away or just not knowing. They show up in, in kind of three ways. The first one, in terms of our behavior in the world, you could say, is sometimes it's called the, the transgressive level where we're acting them out, where they have the upper hand, where they do have power in the mind and heart and they lead to actions of body and speech. And then a second level, sometimes called obsessive, they're arising in the mind, they're coming up, but there's enough presence of mind, you could say, that we're not acting them out. And then there's a third level, more subtle, called the level of um, latent tendencies. And this is where they're not in the moment manifesting, they're not showing up, but the potential for them is there. And there's an image uh, that's used sometimes of mud that has settled to the bottom of a pond, but something can stir that up. And the, uh, the potential is there. If the right button gets pushed, they'll come up. So they're not eradicated, but they're in a kind of dormant state, inactive. I had an interesting example of this when I was practicing on a long, long retreat. Uh, once and I was living as a monk at that time and I had been up since very early sitting for several hours, very shanti, very <laughs> quiet, totally chilled out. They, these uh, torments of mind were not arising. <laughs> no sign of them. And I'd been sitting for quite a while and at this time I had my own little hut and there were others all around this compound and someone had broken into one of them and we had been told that we needed to leave our porch lights on. Of course the power was off two-thirds of the time so <laughs> that was of <laughs> you know, dubious efficacy but I'd left my light on and for some period of time uh, it was attracting insects who were drawn to light. And there are also uh, lots of these little geckos who eat insects and, and gravity doesn't apply to them and they, they run around upside down on ceilings and things. And so the geckos were having a field day feasting on the bugs 
and dropping legs and other body parts down onto my porch. And there are a lot of ants in Burma and some of them take prey live and uh, they were, and also, but they were having a feast on bug parts. So I get up shanti shanti, head out, you know, at dawn to, uh, before, just before dawn, still really dark, step out onto my porch and immediately these ants, you know, like the biggest worm of all time has shown up and they are, you know, it's like, yay. And they immediately started to try to kill and eat me. And, um, <laughs> and you know, my vitamin tendencies <laughs> arose very quickly <laughs> as I'm, you know, attacked by these ants on my porch. So, <laughs> this is, uh, you can, we can get fooled, lulled into <laughs> thinking they're not there. The right certain conditions, they'll come up. So, the Eightfold Path factors then address these, uh, the energies on these different levels, this, these uh, kilesas, greed, hatred, delusion, these three levels, then they're, they're addressed by the, the path factors. And this is kind of a classical rearranging of, of, uh, of the usual sequence into what are called, what's called the three trainings of sila, samadhi, panya. So they're, they're arranged in a different order. And so we have this transgressive level where we're actually acting out then the, um, the factors that deal with our conduct in terms of right action, speech, and livelihood, they address these. So we are engaging with the precepts and our commitment to living carefully, not harming this foundation for the practice. Because if we're acting out these energies, if they have that much sway over the mind and heart, we're not going to be able to uh, look at the, the mental energy that gives rise to them because these all actions are born in the mind, born in the heart. We're, we're past that stage, so we won't be able to, uh, to look at how those energies, we won't be able to see that. So that acting out this transgressive levels then uh, meets them and, and addresses them at that level. And so then uh, we, um, meet them at this, what's called the obsessive level where the energies are arising. And that's a lot of what we're doing uh, in our meditation practice. We're seeing this happening. This, uh, where the factors then of right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, then address that. They let us actually be able to sit with them and not have to act them out. We can meet the energies in their arising, in their natural state, as Mei Chi Kao said. We sit with anger and frustration and sadness and boredom and confusion and desire and craving and, and we get to know them, we understand them, we don't have to act them out. We open to them, feel them without having to turn away, without having to try to manipulate things so that we don't have to feel them. And we start to see if we actually meet them in this way and are willing to be there with them, that they actually, we see that they are impermanent conditioned arisings. They come and go on their own and they start to relax and unbind. And as we apply these factors of energy and mindfulness concentration, 
the mind does become more collected and at times there is a certain kind of stability and a certain uh, purity of mind that we taste and touch. And when it reads, reaches a certain uh, level of, of strength for moments at least, or periods of time, then, then these torments are held at bay by the strength of, our, of these factors working together. They're held at bay and it can be peaceful, restful time. But like my description of my aunts in Burma, it's a, a conditioned state and, and uh, it hasn't eradicated or uprooted these, these things. They're, they're in their latent state, they're inactive, they're dormant, but the right conditions, they can re-arise there. They're suppressed or there just isn't any space for them at that time. And so this, on this third level of the uh, latent tendencies, you could say, the wisdom group, then sila samadhi panya, the panya, wisdom, insight group, addresses them. And, and actually here's where, where we find the possibility of actually uprooting them. A level of real insight that arises out of our willingness to show up and meet, meet these energies when they re-arise, when they show up. And, and so wisdom then can actually uproot them or render them powerless, you could say, either way. So I've been talking about greed, hatred, delusion, these energies as these, these torments, these root causes of suffering. There's an, a delusion that underlies these, more fundamental in a certain way, that manifests in, in three ways. Taking that which is impermanent to be permanent, taking that which is incapable of providing lasting happiness or satisfaction to be capable of doing that and taking that which is not an ongoing enduring self to be a self. And, and the, the factors of the path working all together give us the chance to see how this uh, operates. The stability of mind in the meditative practice lets us see the truth of change on more and more subtle and profound levels. And we start to see just how quickly everything is shifting and changing. And through seeing this really deeply, we start to see that there actually is nothing there that we can hold on to as being a source of of dependable source for our happiness because nothing lasts, even, even a fraction of a moment. So it's not dependable or reliable and we start to see through uh, the, the deepest kind of misunderstanding that has to do with this taking that which is not an ongoing permanent self to be one. And we start to see that what we take to be a self is a feeling that what actually is happening is this flow of natural processes, just nature unfolding, conditions that come together and change and fall away. That it's a process that's happening by itself and there's no one behind it who's controlling it or to whom it is happening. That it's when we cling or identify with some aspect of that process 
that this feeling I am arises, a feeling that comes from that relationship there. And seeing this inclines the mind and heart to release because we just let things arise and pass as is their nature. We don't have to pick any of it up, latch onto it as I, as me, as mine. So freedom is the result of this letting be, letting things be, letting nature, giving back to nature. We give it back to nature. One teacher said, this whole practice, what we're doing is we're giving back to nature what we mistakenly appropriated as our own. And it results just from seeing the way things are, from seeing the truth of things, not from getting something we don't have or going somewhere where we aren't. So we have to be careful, the image of the path, we not, we're not going somewhere new. We're just seeing in a new way. So this truth, it's always there, because it's always the truth. If it's not always true, it's not the real deal. So this is again from Mei Chi Kao, following on from that earlier quotation. In a perfectly still crystal clear pool of water, we can see everything with clarity. The heart at complete rest is still. When the heart is still, wisdom appears easily and fluently. When wisdom flows, clear understanding follows. The world's impermanent, unsatisfactory, and insubstantial nature is seen in a flash of insight and we become fed up with our attachment to this mass of suffering and loosen our grip. In that moment of coolness, the fires in our heart abate, while freedom from suffering arises naturally of its own accord. This transformation occurs because the original mind is, by its very nature, absolutely pure and unblemished. Purity is its normal state. So if you think about it, this practices that we're doing here, they're the same as what the Buddha and all of his disciples at the time when he was alive and teaching, it's the same practices. And we're exploring nature, nature in the body, mind, in the heart, nature internally, nature externally. It's the same exploration, the same, we're working with the same raw materials. We live in the world of change and unpredictability. That has not changed. The, the truth of uh, dukkha, the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of it, the truth of its release, the path that might lead to that, that, stays, that stayed the same, that's the same. So there is this timelessness to the, the understandings here. They're not time bound in any way. It's always there. This possibility to realize this is always there. So I'll leave you tonight with a few words from Ajahn Chah. 
Do not try to become anything. Do not make yourself into anything. Do not be a meditator. Do not become enlightened. When you sit, just let it be. When you walk, let it be. Grasp at nothing, resist nothing. You will reach a point where the heart tells itself what to do. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will see clearly the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go. But you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. The Buddha taught us to lay down those things that lack a real abiding essence. If you lay everything down, you will see the truth. If you don't, you won't. That's the way it is. And when wisdom awakens within you, you will see the truth wherever you look. Truth is all you'll see. So we can have a couple moments quietly now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.